In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who gave the priest, St. John of the Cross, an outstanding dedication to perfect self-denial and love of the cross, grant that by imitating him closely at all times, we may come to contemplate eternally your glory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. St. John of the Cross. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop who's going to talk about St. John of the Cross, often known as a mystic. Have you had any mystical experiences, Bishop? I don't know that I can really answer that. There were two kind of experiences, but but I hesitate in a way because it's kind of hard to articulate. But speaking of mystical, that's what John of the Cross is. He's called the mystical doctor. Huh. He's a doctor of the church. And as you know, the doctors of the church are really saintly figures who... They, they're canonized saints who taught amazing, beautiful doctrine. Hmm. So John of the Cross is known as the mystical doctor, because, especially because of his writings on the spiritual life and prayer. What do we mean by that word? If we say somebody is a mystic or that, that they've had a mystical experience or that his writings are mystical. Yeah, it really means kind of like the highest contemplative state and experience of God. An experience of God's closeness, God's love in a very, very deep way, kind of like a foretaste of heaven. It's kind of like the heights of prayer, contemplative prayer. Okay. What, is that similar to what someone would call like ecstasy? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And of course, you know, you can't, we can't talk about St. John of the Cross without talking about St. Teresa of Avila. Okay. He was a spiritual friend of St. Teresa, the great reformer of the Carmelites. And she and John of the Cross were instrumental in the reform of the Carmelite order in the 16th century. And they are called discalced Carmelites. Discalced literally means without shoes. They wore sandals. Hmm. But there was great need. This was a time of great reform in the church in Spain. The 16th century, of course, we had the Protestant Reformation and then the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Mm -hmm. And John of the Cross was born just a few years before the Council of Trent began. I think it was, he was born in 1542, and I think the council began in like 1545 or 46. And so this was a time where, you know, there was a need for reform of religious orders. There was a need for reform throughout the church, in the hierarchy, among priests and clergy and all of this. And the Council of Trent was a great reforming council. Uh, but it was kind of, you know, tumultuous time because of the Protestant split. But it's interesting in these times of turmoil how God raises up these great saints. And Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross are two of my favorite spiritual masters. Hmm. And I really became much more enamored of 
uh, the writings of St. Teresa. When I was a seminarian and a young priest, I, I got so much out of her writings. And I have to confess, though, I didn't get a lot out of St. John of the Cross. I kind of gave up because I remember I was reading one of his major works called The Living Flame of Love. And it's very, I mean, he was a poet and it's kind of like the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, which I always found kind of difficult. I couldn't relate to that kind of poetic language very I think I'm more concrete or whatever. Uh. So I have to confess, I kind of didn't have much, you know, devotion or interest in St. John of the Cross throughout most of my priesthood until a few years ago, we had a Carmelite priest who gave a one of our priest's retreats. Mm -hmm. And it was great. He incorporated Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, St. Therese of Lisieux, other Carmelite saints in his conferences. And I got talking to him. Uh -huh. And I kind of shared that, you know, I really had a hard time with the writings of John of the Cross. And he kind of encouraged me. To, he recommended that I re get a book called John of the Cross, Doctor of Light and Love by Father Kieran Cavanaugh. So I did. And it really kind of opened my eyes to, and then inspired me to go back to John of the Cross's writings. And I have a new appreciation of John of the Cross. Huh. I'm like mad at myself for not <laughs> discovering him earlier yes. and getting discouraged. Even though my hero, John Paul II, was a, had great devotion to John of the Cross. He wrote his doctoral thesis at the Angelicum University in Rome on faith in the writings of St. John of the Cross. As a matter of fact, I remember thinking to myself, how is he, John Paul, so, and, and I've come to realize that he is John Paul's own contemplative life was so formed by John of the Cross. Hmm. To understand John Paul's spirituality, one needs to read St. John of the Cross. Really? And I've come to even realize that more in the last couple of years since I've been reading more of, of John of the Cross. But maybe it'd be helpful before we talk about all his writings to talk a little bit about his, his life. I mean, he was, as I said, born in 1542, and it was he was born in near Avila. You know, we know St. Teresa of Avila. And his family was very, very poor. And I think that's important to know. His father had been from a noble family in Toledo, Spain, Toledo, but he was his father was thrown out of his home and and he was disowned because he married this humble woman who was a silk weaver, and that was not acceptable to his family that he would would marry this poor woman. So he kind of got disowned. John of the Cross's father died when I think John was probably about nine years old. So it was at that point that he moved with his mother and his brother to a town called Medina del Campo, which isn't far from Valladolid in Spain, which was a pretty big city, cultural center, commercial center. And he attended a, a college, which is what we would call a high school. They call a college, Colegio de los Doctrinos. While he was attending, he would do some work for the sisters at a church convent there, a humble task really. But he was an excellent student and also had a great personality. So he was admitted 
as a male nurse to a hospital there, and then to the Jesuit college in this city of Medina del Campo. And he was 18 years old when he entered the Jesuit college. He studied the humanities. He studied rhetoric and classical languages for three years. And it was at the end of that time that he had the idea that he was being called to the religious life. And he felt called to become a Carmelite. Now, he was at a Jesuit college, so that was kind of strange because he was very bright. But he felt this tug towards a Carmelite vocation. So he began his novitiate with the Carmelites, and he took the religious name San Juan de Santo Matia, St. John of St. Matthias. Okay. So his name wasn't John of the Cross at the beginning. His religious name was John of St. Matthias. Was, uh, that, was that something that people did? Like, take, I've never heard of a a John of St. Matthias, like a, is that common or uh no it, it, i don't know how common but i've heard of it okay. before yeah yeah hmm. and then he went after he entered the novitiate the following year he went to the university of salamanca and i spent a summer as a deacon in salamanca and i would i had classes at the university of salamanca okay. so i kind of knew that john of the cross had gone there but again i didn't have a lot of devotion to him at uh -huh. that time and he studied at the University of Salamanca for three years. He studied humanities and philosophy. And then he was ordained a priest in 1567. He returned to celebrate his first mass at the church in Medina del Campo. And his family was there. It was wonderful. And it was then that he first met Teresa, hmm. which was not, I don't think, a coincidence. This meeting... Now, Teresa was quite a bit older than him, and she explained to John her uh, plan for reforming the Carmelite order in Spain. And she also wanted to reform the male branch of the order. I mean, now how could she do that? She could do it. She was a Carmelite nun, but she also thought that the Carmelite brothers and priests needed reform. And she asked well, more or less suggested to him that he support this project for the greater glory of God. And John was fascinated by Teresa's ideas, and he became a champion of this project. Uh -huh. So they worked together, they shared ideas for several months, and they wanted to begin this first house of discalced Carmelite priests as soon as possible. And it was opened at a town called, it's kind of a remote part of that province of Avila, called Duruello in 1568. So that was the first reformed Carmelite community, male community in Spain. And it was just one and three companions. And they renewed their religious profession, their vows, but in a way that they would live the primitive rule. And they each took a new name. So Juan de San Matias became Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross. Okay. As time went on, a couple of years later, Teresa, St. Teresa of Avila, asked him to be the confessor and vicar of the monastery where she was at, the Monastery of the Incarnation in Avila. And I've been there, very famous. Teresa was prioress there. Uh -huh. And... 
it was a convent that had, you know, like 140 nuns or something. Mm -hmm. But they were from different social statuses and they each had different support. Like there were sisters who were more poor. There were nuns who were from wealthy families. The nuns from more wealthy families were, you know, received a lot from their families and all that. Right. So you could see that, you know, they weren't really living the poverty as well. And, mm -hmm. and so it needed reform. And Teresa was the great reformer. And John of the Cross, becoming kind of like the spiritual father there at the Monastery of the Incarnation, he became very close to Teresa, spiritually very close, this friendship that they had. So that was a very important period, the years that John of the Cross spent there at the Monastery of the Incarnation. He was like a, what we'd call today a spiritual director mm -hmm. as well as a confessor. Now, life wasn't easy because not everyone, you know, was open to the reform. Right. And it gets kind of complicated. I won't get into all the details, but the most traumatic episode came in the year 1577. And Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross, was captured and imprisoned in a Carmelite convent monastery <laughs> in Toledo, Spain. Okay. He had enemies, uh -huh. and he was imprisoned for like nine months. And really, he was abused. I mean, he was not allowed to have mass. He was denied a lot of things, physical things. And But it was during that time that he was imprisoned that he wrote some poetry, including one of his most famous writings called The Spiritual Canticle. At least he wrote like a good part of it. I think he wrote the last part after he got freed but after nine months he he made a very daring escape and he sought shelter in the the monastery of the Descalced Carmelite nuns in Toledo and of course Saint Teresa and the nuns were thrilled that he was free and he needed to recover because you know he had gotten weak and lost weight and you know he was hurt while he was imprisoned hmm. And then he was assigned to southern Spain, to the region call, called Andalusia, and he spent 10 years down there, especially in the city of Granada. Hmm. He was chosen for different offices in the order. He became the vicar provincial. Eventually, he returned north to his native land, became a part of the like central government of the Carmelites in Spain. He lived for a while in the uh, Carmel of Segovia, the city of Segovia. He was the community superior. And then it was decided that he'd be relieved of this responsibility and assigned to go to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it was while he was preparing to go to Mexico on a voyage with 10 companions that he got very, very sick and suffered. And, and he did so patiently, peacefully, and, and he died on December 14th, 1591, and that's his feast day now, December 14th. While they were praying the Office of Readings, he died. And he kind of said goodbye when he said, today I'm going to sing the Office in heaven, hmm. the divine office. They brought his body, his remains, to, back to Segovia, eventually became canonized a saint, and he's... And he's just very well known for his writings. But I think knowing about his life, you know, sometimes we think, you know, idealistically about 
the lives of the saints. He had a tough life. Yeah. But all through the sufferings and the trials, the opposition that he and Teresa had from those who didn't want the reform to go forward, even persecuted by his superiors, it never like got him down. It mm -hmm. never he would never respond in an angry or hateful way. He was a man he was just so holy and full of love, even for those who opposed him and persecuted him. So I think that's good to know before we actually talk about his writings and teachings. Yeah. Well, that's a great background. And I do want to hear about his writings and teachings and, and how they've influenced, especially, you know, like you mentioned, St. Pope John Paul II. So that'll be coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. With Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our online banking and mobile app are like having a branch right at your fingertips with everything you need to use and manage your accounts 24-7. Check us out at NotreDameFCU.com, insured by NCUA. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with Bishop talking about St. John of the Cross and also mentioned St. Teresa of Avila and and the work that they did with the Carmelite Order. You, you mentioned the writings of St. John of the Cross being mystical, and also that they influenced St. Pope John Paul II. And to understand JP2's theology, you had to, to fully understand it, you had to know St. John of the Cross. What, what did you mean by that? Like, What influence do you see in... John Paul II was a contemplative, no doubt. He okay. had mystical experiences. Uh -huh. He was very much spiritually formed, I think, by the writings of, of John of the Cross. And as I said, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the theme of faith, because that's kind of like the whole, if you're going to get to the core of things, it's John of the Cross's tremendous faith. And mm. his whole life is really, all his teaching is really about the three theological virtues, that this is the Christian life, faith, hope, and charity, mm. faith, hope, and charity. And so it all begins with faith. He had this basic, I'd say, conviction that's God and God alone who gives value and meaning to our every activity. He said, he wrote for where God is unknown, nothing is known. So he was a contemplative Carmelite, but at the same time, he was serving the church. He was active in many ways in the reform. He was, but he was, he lived with his brothers in community with the reform, you know, that had to do with prayer and silence, renunciation, and all of this really steeped in faith, hope, and love. So this is the Carmelite charism. And he was able, not only from his own experience becoming closer to God, he was able to help other people to enter into familiar conversation with God. He taught them how to discover God's presence and God's love in all the circumstances of life, including, and most importantly, in suffering. Mm -hmm. And when one feels abandoned by God, He's, he writes about the dark night of the soul and that's one of the things he's most famous for. But it was his personal faith 
he was a man in love with God. And he always was speaking about God. He carried God in his heart, on his lips. This was his treasure. And, and he spoke of God so passionately and convincingly. So this was the gift of faith. And, and that gift brings alive for, for believers like you and me what we know in mystery. It comes to become real for us in our everyday life. And this is, I think, the gift that St. John of the Cross had, this tremendous faith and seeing God in everything. He had a great love for the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. And he, you'll see that in his writings. His great love of, of Jesus, the Son of God made man. And he would contemplate the scriptures. I mean, he was a man, if you say, what's the primary source of his writings? It was the Bible. Hmm. And he often said this. He was especially attracted to chapter 17 of St. John's Gospel. And the words, this is eternal life, that they should know you, the one true God, and him whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. That's from John chapter 17, verse 3. And his life, John of the Cross's life, really echoes those words. This was life for him, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So his whole spiritual life revolved around the mysteries of the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation. And he sang of these mysteries in his poetry. So he's seeking God through faith, and he finds him, and he welcomes God into the depths of his being, into his heart. He found God also in the work of creation. He loved nature. He loved going out, hiking, and he would see God in everything. And this brought him joy, and this brought richness to his life. And he saw that the three theological virtues all grow together, faith, hope, and charity. Mm -hmm. Really, these are the primary attitudes of Christian existence, faith, hope, and charity. And at every stage of our journey of life, this is what's most important. So like he and Teresa also really didn't have much time for those who would like focus on extraordinary kind of, I don't know, miracles and or claims of extraordinary phenomena. Uh -huh. No, I mean, Teresa would say, you know, a nun who was claiming these things, she'd assign her to go and wash the floor or something, uh -huh. you know, like, like come down to earth kind of thing. Everything was about faith, hope, and love. And, and you didn't have to be like trained in theology or it was as John of the Cross would speak about, although he was trained in theology, but he talked about knowing God through love. One didn't have to be like an, an educated person, a well-educated person to have this. So, so this was the principle of his life, uh, faith. And really, in his writings, he, he writes about the basic criteria, this fundamental principle uh, there's one quote that I think might be helpful. I'll talk a little bit about what are the books, but in The Ascent of Mount Carmel, which is one of his major works, actually it's my favorite, uh -huh. The Ascent of Mount Carmel, he wrote this. We must in all of this presuppose a fundamental principle, which will be like a staff 
a continual support for our journey. It must be kept in mind because it is the light which will be our guide and master in this doctrine. By it we must, amid all these goods, direct joy to God. The principle is this. The will should rejoice only in what is for the honor and glory of God. And the greatest honor we can give him is to serve him according to evangelical perfection. Anything not included in such service is without value to man. Hmm. He also saw the importance of the relationship between faith and reason. He saw also the importance of living our faith through interior prayer. But he saw the human reason as very valuable. One of his famous axioms was, one thought alone of man is worth more than the entire world. Hence, God alone is worthy of him. Wow. He recognized that we're rational beings and reason has its limits, but it also, there is the light of reason. So we don't renounce our rationality, but we need to be open to the horizons of mystery. And then interior prayer. He highlights this in his writings. It's, so it's not only about intellectual advancement, but this contemplative dimension. The Christian must encounter God in mystery. So contemplative prayer. He calls it knowledge or loving awareness of God and the mysteries that God has revealed to us. He would always have us pray with a gaze of faith and contemplative love. And really is an education of our soul for this interior union with Christ. He talks a lot. He wrote another work. Besides the Ascent of Mount Carmel, he wrote another major work called The Dark Night. This is a typical human experience, Christian experience. There are times in our life where there's anguish, where God seems silent or, or absent. Could be someone in the midst of war, someone who has uh, great suffering in their life sickness, hunger, injustice, whatever. And he speaks of this as a way in which God purifies us. And it's a night of faith, the dark night. He doesn't try to like speculate about this problem of suffering or the problem of evil, but in the light of Scripture and his own experience, he discovers how God transforms us through suffering, through darkness. He knows to draw how to draw good out of evil so wisely and beautifully. Of course, we all will face the mystery of death, but God brings good out of evil. This is what God wants to do, and of course, there's the resurrection. So when we experience pain or injustice and we feel you know, God is silent and we complain. And he says like, okay, we don't give God credit for joys in our life, but we blame him for sorrows in our life. Mm, right. But we do feel this loss of, from God in a deep way. We can feel like we're in the darkness of the abyss, the dark night. But it's there 
that John of the Cross discovered the loving hand of the divine teacher. Hmm. He found himself purified. The faith becomes deeper and more real because one doesn't have the consolation. Mm -hmm. So one is challenged to still believe in the love of God, even though he seems absent. This was the experience of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, by the way. Right. So did he originate that concept? He did. Okay. Now, Teresa of Avila also, but I think John of the Cross even more so. So he's really talking about in the midst of such interior darkness and suffering, with faith, we can go through these trials without becoming discouraged. We're failing the beloved. The beloved, he wrote, so proves the faith of his bride in tribulations. She can always afterwards truthfully declare what David said. Because of the words of your lips, I have kept hard ways. I've been able to persevere, in other words. So it's kind of like an education from God. But it also can mean that we experience the full effect of sin. Isn't that what happened with Jesus? Mm. I mean, think of Jesus' dark night mm -hmm. hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But Jesus didn't lose trust in his Father. So Jesus really discloses the mysterious meaning of suffering. And through his glorious cross, lights up the darkest night of the Christian. So he would habitually meditate on the cross. Um, he wrote a poem called The Shepherd Boy. And he also drew a picture of Christ crucified. It's known as the Christ of John of the Cross. And he wrote some of the most beautiful pages in all of literature on the mystery of the abandonment of Christ on the cross, the atrocious suffering that Jesus underwent, but yet it had a redemptive value. It was in order to save us and to bring us to union with God. Mm. And Jesus surrendered himself lovingly to the Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When he felt abandonment, it was a moment of greatest love. The most, the greatest thing that Jesus ever did surpassed, John of the Cross said, this surpasses the crucifixion. Jesus freely accepting that suffering and death, that's his greatest miracle he ever performed on earth or in heaven because it brought about the reconciliation and the union of the human race with God through grace. So, yeah, the cross reveals how terrible sin is, but it also reveals how immense the love of our Redeemer is. Right. So he talks about faith. It becomes a flame of charity that's stronger than death, and it's the seed and fruit of the resurrection. He wrote, Do not think of any other thing but that God ordains all and where there is no love, put in love, and you will draw out love. Because ultimately at evening, they will examine you in love. In other words, at the sunset of our life, we will be judged by love. So, so much more can be said. He wrote this, his major works are, as I said, The Ascent of Mount Carmel, The Dark Knight, 
Also, the spiritual canticle, which he began, wrote most of it when he was imprisoned, hmm. and the living flame of love. The living flame of love was the the poem that I had read early on, and I couldn't get anything, yeah. and it kind of turned me off. But now I have the collected works of St. John of the Cross, and what I love is that it has all his writings in one book, okay. and it, it doesn't, it's not something you, I read quickly. Uh -huh. I love the poems that are there because it has the Spanish on one side and the English on the other. Hmm. He's a, you know, he's considered one of the greatest poets in Spain, the history in literature, really? Spanish literature and Spanish poetry. I mean, he's studied in all the universities and everything and, uh, and beyond, mm -hmm. you know, there's even people of other religions and all that because of the literature. Mm -hmm. But this book has his poetry, has these major works. And in the spiritual canticle, he presents the process of the soul's purification and that the gradual, joyful possession of God until the soul, this is very famous, until the soul succeeds in feeling that it loves God with the same love with which it is loved by him. Hmm. And then the living flame of love is also has that kind of perspective this transforming union with God. And the, he always uses the, the image of fire. The stronger the fire burns and consumes wood, the brighter it grows until it blazes into a flame. He says, so likewise the Holy Spirit, who purifies and cleanses the soul during the dark night, with time illuminates and warms it as though it were a flame. The life of the soul is a continual celebration of the Holy Spirit, which gives us a glimpse of the glory of union with God in eternity. And when you read the ascent of Mount Carmel, that's kind of the spiritual journey from the viewpoint of the gradual purification of the soul that's necessary in order to reach the heights of Christian perfection which is symbolized by the summit of Mount Carmel. So that's why it's called the ascent of Mount Carmel. So this is the human journey of purification where we collaborate with God's grace and we get gradually our souls are freed from attachments to sin or disordered affections that are contrary to God's will. But this purification is necessary to attain this union of love with God. We need to be purified of the life of the senses and grow in faith, hope, and charity. That's what purifies us. As we grow in faith, we grow in hope, we grow in charity. So there's something passive about this in that God is in charge here of our purification. We're by ourselves, our own human powers, endeavors, we're unable to reach these profound roots of our bad inclinations and bad habits. We can check them, but we can't entirely uproot them. That requires the special action of God who radically purifies the spirit and prepares the spirit for union of love with him. Hmm. So that's why he speaks of this purification as passive. You know, something we have to accept, we accept but it, we, we can't do it. It's the action of the Holy Spirit who, like a burning flame, consumes all these impurities. So our soul is subjected 
to every kind of trial as if it were in a dark night. This is very profound mystical doctrine, and this is really a sure way to attain holiness, the state of perfection to which God calls all of us. This inner purification in order to be transformed into God, the perfection. Our souls become pure and free. So all this disorderliness, dependence on things, all things should be placed in God as the source, as the center, as the goal of life. And this is a long and difficult process. It requires personal effort, but, but the one doing it is God. Mm. All that we do is we prepare ourselves. We open ourselves to the divine action. Try not to put obstacles. But by living the theological virtues, by having faith, hope, and love, loving others, etc., that's what opens us to God's action and to this purification and this gradual union with God in lives that are transformed in Him. And when we reach the goal, we're immersed in the life of the Trinity itself. You know, there's no true union of love with God that doesn't culminate in Trinitarian union to be bathed in divine love. This is pretty lofty, yeah. um, but and it's a demanding journey. You know, the ascent of Mount Carmel. But this isn't something just for some people. You know, really, John of the Cross, I talked about his life earlier. It wasn't a bed of roses. He didn't just kind of stay on the mystical clouds. He had a very hard life. He had mm -hmm. practical concerns to deal with. He had to reform the order. He had a lot of opposition. He was put in prison. He was abused. He had a hard life. But through all this, he was growing in holiness. He was growing closer to God. He was being purified. He bore this great love. And he was able to face the troubles of life because he had this faith. He was close to God. He experienced God's love for him, and he allowed himself to be loved by God in Jesus. So anyhow, that's, it's kind of hard to put the teachings and the writings of John of the Cross into a brief episode. I want to again mention his four great works. Also, there are some of his letters that we have that are also interesting to read. He also has some other poetry that he wrote there's also some maxims, or I guess, I don't know what we would call them, kind of like nuggets of wisdom yeah. that you can read. Are those taken from other writings? or is No, he wrote he... them separately. Okay. He wrote them separately, yeah. What would you suggest as a starting? Would, would the maxims be a good place to, to start if you're maybe intimidated by? Yeah, I think that would be. I'm, I'm trying to think in the collected works, it has everything that he wrote, but they're called the sayings of light and love. Okay. The sayings. Uh -huh. So if you look up, do a Google search, the sayings of John of the Cross, okay. the sayings of light and love, you'll find these sayings. I could give you an example. He also wrote, I forget how many, it's, it's like 200 or so, but he also gives kind of an introduction uh, to them that kind of helps us understand. I mean, just one of them. In joys and pleasures... Immediately draw near to God in fear and truth, and you will be neither deceived nor involved in vanity. Hmm. Another one, take God for your bridegroom and friend, 
and walk with him continually, and you will not sin and will learn to love. And the things you must do will work out prosperously for you. Hmm. Sounds Another like it could one. be a daily calendar kind of a thing. Yeah. Like something to reflect on each day. Yep. Bridle your tongue and your thoughts very much. Direct your affection habitually toward God, and your spirit will be divinely enkindled. Another one. The devil fears a soul united to God as he does God himself. The soul that has reached the union of love does not even experience the first motions of sin. I mean, so get a little idea of these sayings. Yeah. I mean, that is a good idea. But, you know, what I learned is I cannot read anything of John of the Cross quickly. Uh You know, even in reading The Ascent of Mount Carmel, I think it took me a year. Huh. Because... And I think I learned by being, when I was turned off, I was like reading continually and I'm like, oh, this is too hard. But now, you know, I just feel it's something just to savor. Hmm. Spiritual canticle also, the living flame of love. His letters are also interesting to read. I still love, I'd still say, you know, Teresa of Avila, I I really appreciate the most, but but I've grown to really appreciate uh, John of the Cross. And when I have the poems side by side, the Spanish and the English, I mean, the Spanish is is phenomenally beautiful. Mm. And that's kind of nice to be able to read the English. And, you know, it's just, you know, a couple stanzas at a time, a stanza at a time. And then I would read the Spanish and just the the beauty of the language as well. So anyhow, I hope this has been helpful to the listeners and maybe it will encourage some people. I mean, I just think, how did these two incredible people meet? And Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, not only bringing this great reform to the Carmelite order, but giving us some of these, these richest spiritual doctrine, mystical theology. Well, it kind of makes you wonder, could they have done it alone? Like, did, did they strengthen each other? and able to be more great than they would have been had they been born a hundred years apart, you know? Definitely, definitely. Obviously, it was, the reform originated with Teresa. I mean, she died before John. John was only, by the way, 49 years old when he died. Hmm. You know, he died before he went to Mexico, but, but she had died some years before that. But then it was, I mean, she, like, was so impressed by John and... She spoke, when you read some of her writings, the way she speaks about John of the Cross, you feel not only her love for him, but his spiritual wisdom, you know, really rubbed off on her. And they founded all these monasteries. I mean, they're not just like in their cells, you know, in this, you know, praying. They, They founded dozens and dozens of these reformed monasteries with all the troubles that went on with it. But in the midst of all that, they were deeply rooted in prayer and even charity. I mean, John of the Cross, you know, like he was always concerned for the sick and the poor. He was always, I mean, he was living the gospel that he was loving others. He was just wasn't this pie in the sky type spirituality. No, it was deep, deep. His life was so deeply rooted in prayer, but he he was doing good, you know, 
again, it was faith, hope, and charity. Yeah. He didn't neglect charity. All right. Well, thank you for that reflection. I didn't really know a whole lot about St. John of the Cross before this, so a great little uh, lesson for us all. So before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.